This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Busson. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss medical cannabis for sleep and pain with pharmacist Andy Donald. We'll find out about health trends and predictions for 2023 with Professor James F. Jordan. We'll learn all you need to know about seeds with master organic gardener Melissa Cameron. And lastly, we'll get an update on the science of exercise with researcher David Nelson. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot of healthy headlines. According to a new study out of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, a variety of healthy eating patterns are linked to reduced risk of premature death. Participants who scored high on adherence to at least one of the four healthy eating patterns, and the following are the Healthy Eating Index 2015, the Alternate Mediterranean Diet, the Healthful Plant-Based Diet Index, and the Alternate Healthy Eating Index, were less likely to die during the study period from any cause and less likely to die from cardiovascular disease, cancer, or respiratory disease compared to people with lower scores. Did you know that obesity is more dangerous for males? They're more likely than women to develop conditions associated with obesity, such as cardiovascular disease, insulin resistance, and diabetes. A new study out of York University sheds light on the biological underpinnings in sex differences and obesity-related disease, with researchers observing striking differences in the cells that build blood vessels in the fatty tissue of males versus female mice. The research team observed in earlier studies that when mice became obese, females grew a lot of new blood vessels to supply the expanding fat tissue with oxygen and nutrients, whereas males grow a lot less. In this latest study, Research focused on the differences in the endothelial cells that make up the building blocks of the blood vessels in fat tissue. Students sometimes pull an all-nighter to prepare for an exam. However, research has shown that sleep deprivation is bad for your memory. Now, University of Groningen neuroscientist Robert Havakus discovered that what you learn while being sleep-deprived is not necessarily lost, it's just difficult to recall. Together with his team, he has found a way to make this hidden knowledge accessible again days after studying whilst sleep-deprived using optogenetic approaches and the human-approved asthma drug, Roflumalast. That was your tonic quick shot. I'll be joined by Andy Donald in a moment. But first, a little bit of business. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait, go today. Andy Donald is a certified geriatric pharmacist and president of the Health Depot Pharmacy. 
His passion to help patients and deliver personalized services led him to launch the Health Depot, one of Ontario's only clinical pharmacies. And he's active in his profession, serving on several committees, including the Ontario Pharmacists Association and Prescribe It. He holds a BSc PHM, an RPH BPHED, a BSCH in life science, and an MSc Cellular Biology and Anatomy. Welcome back to the show, Andy. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year to you too. So in the January-February issue of The Tonic Magazine, I write about my inability to stay asleep. So I, I can fall asleep anywhere, but I do not stay asleep. In trying to fix that, I've been sort of experimenting. I'm going to horrify you, okay? Be prepared to be shocked and horrified. I've been experimenting with (laughs) recreational cannabis, obviously for the recreational part, but also because anecdotally, it's been helping me sleep through the night. I noticed, you know, if if I take a gummy, I get a full night's sleep. I don't wake up. I get about seven hours, which is really good for me. I otherwise do not get seven hours straight. I thought it'd be interesting to bring you on the show to discuss whether cannabis can be used properly as a sleep aid and get your thoughts as a pharmacist on cannabis in this arena. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So so let's get to it. It, it, Can cannabis be effective for a good night's sleep? It can. So when we talk cannabis is global, there's a lot of different types sure. of, of cannabis, right? Uh, yep. Constituents. So you have the main ones, THC, that can be effective in low amounts. This is where cannabis versus marijuana, the recreational uh, to get high, yeah. the stigma has come because the recreational side has really high doses of THC. But for medical, low doses can be very effective to help you with sleep because it helps with pain anxiety and actually can calm you down and make you tired. Same thing with cannabinoids can be effective for that as well. And then the other part in it is terpenes that help with pain and inflammation, nausea and anxiety as well. So different constituents can all help you with that. And it's more so for helping you to calm down and slow down your nerves. And so it has been shown to be effective for that. When you say low dose, like what is low dose though? Well, yeah, it, that's where you, you're speaking to, unfortunately I can't speak much to the dosing because it's not in our scope at the moment, but okay. it's lower than the recreational are crazy high. Yep. It's at a lot lower levels. If you speak to uh, definitely a doctor who specializes in cannabis, it's just uh, trace amounts, like low percentages of the actual THC can help as well. But the cannabinoids also help. So the issue with them is, I think we talked last time about sleep and the quality of sleep. Yes. Is that, you know, the cannabinoids don't really affect that rapid eye movement sleep as much. So cannabis can help you get more of a deep sleep. Absolutely. More time spent in deep sleep. But the higher the THC dose can decrease your amount of time spent in in the REM sleep. So lower doses, which is good, probably doesn't have a big effect on that dream sleep where you consolidate new memories and learning, but it helps you get more into the quality deep sleep. So what you were talking about, noticing that it does help you sleep and stay asleep because you're getting more into that deep sleep. Okay. So that's, that's interesting because I am a frequent dreamer. Like some people notice their dreams and other people's don't. And I acknowledge and I'm aware that I am dreaming and it doesn't seem to be impacting my dreams, although it is definitely not low dose. So that's interesting. Maybe. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm, I'm at 15 MG, which is pretty high, no pun intended. And it seems that I'm still capable of dreaming. So maybe I should be taking a journal just to see, like keeping track of whether or not I'm actually dreaming and remembering those dreams, because that would be the, the REM stage, right? 
Absolutely. So, and that's where it comes down to relative. Cannabis altogether affects your dream sleep less than a lot of the, the hardcore, heavy duty, the sleep hypnotics do as well. So it's a better alternative that doesn't have as much of an effect on that. It's just some of the studies, you know, it's still early days for all the studies. They just yeah. made cannabis legal recently. So they're doing studies right now and they show that the THC component can affect your dream sleep. But at what levels, they still need to determine a lot of that. In the coming years, it's exciting. There's an explosion of research going into this because the drastic effects it can have on sleep, anxiety, depression, even uh, pain, uh, different studies are showing. Right. So let's focus on pain for a bit. Uh, How good is cannabis for pain? Yeah, there's some studies that are coming out. Um, So before diving into this, it's good to give kind of a reference on pain. So I'll ask you a quick question that, you know, a lot of people, because they want to know how safe cannabis is and and how good it is at treating pain. I'll ask you, first of all, what do you think is the most safe medication out there to treat pain? The doctors often recommend patients entry-level pain, mild to moderate pain, what they suggest is the safest for you to try. I would, I would go for an Advil if, if I had, was experiencing like muscle pain or something like that. Yeah, often people will go for um, yeah, uh, t- Tylenol or Advil, right? right? Yeah. So acetaminophen or ibuprofen. Right. So a lot of times it's safer if you're taking low doses and you're drinking alcohol, Tylenol right. or acetaminophen right. is what people often recommend. And believe it or not, they didn't even know how that worked in, in the body until 2017, 2018. People wow. have been taking acetaminophen, Tylenol for a long, long time, and we didn't even know how it works. It's just, it, we just... You take it and it helps the pain go away. Right. But in 2000, the end of 2017, early 2018, they figured out in some studies that it binds to cannabinoid receptor 1 in the body, both in your brain and your peripheral system. So what else do you think binds the cannabinoid receptors Pro- in your body? Probably cannabinoids. Can- cannabinoids, cannabis. <laughs> right. And so Tylenol only binds to cannabinoid receptor 1, but there's two main cannabinoid receptors that are often used that we, a lot of research has been going into that cannabinoids bind to. So there's a whole other receptor. So it's just an explosion of looking at what else these receptors can do in our body to help us out. So the safest medication out there for pain, Tylenol, binds that receptor. Now, cannabinoids do it and do it a little bit better. Right. And they found, actually, there's some studies. Uh, there was an older adult study that medical cannabis, an older adult study, that showed three-quarters of patients that took cannabis had reported uh, imp- improvements in their pain, yep. as well as their quality of life, uh, three-quarters. And 63% had improvements in sleep. And it can drastically also found that it drastically reduced the amounts, sometimes if you're in a lot of chronic pain, the amount of opioids you need to take. But the, in, the issues with them, like, that's phenomenal. Like, it can yeah. help right across the yeah. board. But there are, uh, unfortunately, a lot of drug interactions that can happen with cannabis. That's kind of the downside right. that they've been finding. So I guess that's an impediment to use it because for seniors, because seniors, you know, historically have so many more medications that they're taking, right? Yes, exactly. And, and this is, in fact, why actually this year Health Canada released a paper, and they had a recommendation there, recommendation F, that because of the drug interaction potential, and like seniors, if you're on a lot of medications, it can cause a problem. What it does is it slows down your liver, your liver function uh, uh, significantly, uh. so a lot of the other medications in your body stick around longer. Cannabis by itself has very low, if you don't take other medications generally, especially if you have low THC amounts, very low side effects. But then a lot of people sometimes will take cannabis because it's available now on the street corner, right? You can, it's yep. legalized everywhere recreationally. If you're taking other medications, people, I've heard reports from a lot of people that how horrible side effects they had 
And when you talk to them, such as like the Zoomer uh, CARB conference, I talked to a lot of patients there, and they found like a lot of times they'd mention other medications and high doses of it. It was actually the side effect of their other medications in their body because those meds were sticking around two to three times longer because of some of the doses they were taking of cannabis, and that's why they found that it was intolerable. So it caused a lot of other issues, and that's why the actual this year in July 2022, the review on cannabinoids, they recommended that health products containing CBD should only be available in pharmacies because of that interaction potential. I see. So your role as a pharmacist would be to review what medications they're on. And I, I guess the issue would be, presumably they need those medications for conditions they have, therefore cannabis would be ruled out. Or, or would it be a change in dosage? Like it would be. So that's the thing. So, And this is why there's a lot of fear amongst healthcare pra- uh, practitioners out there. Um, sometimes if they don't know what this is going to do to them. So if it's slowing down your liver, your other medications are sticking around longer, in order to go on cannabis safely, you need to often have your other certain medications that will be broken up by the same liver enzymes that are being slowed down. Getting a little nerdy, but um, they, they, your, those other medications will then need to be lowered to lower doses so they right. don't have the same, they're not sticking around as long, but also sometimes switching to safer alternatives. That's the main drawback to, to cannabis, unfortunately, is that it affects the other drugs in your body that then cause an effect. So we need to adjust them, just similar like we do often with other medications like warfarin. We have to adjust your dose. You have to watch what you eat. And even if you change uh, certain things in your diet, you have to change your dose of warfarin. Similarly, we, we need to do that with cannabis. I'm, uh, I'm experimenting with recreational cannabis to help with sleep. But I think you have some sort of warnings for people who are experimenting like I am, right? It's not the best idea to just simply start taking CBD, right? No. Well, it's best to work together with your whole healthcare uh, team. And this is, I hear this all the time, the secret's out. Everyone, uh, a lot of, even uh, older adults, uh, at all the shows and conferences I, I go to or, or talks I do on webinars, they know that it can help. But they're concerned because a lot of times their practitioners won't want to allow them to have cannabis because they don't know what it's doing So, uh, to their other medications. And that has caused a lot of concern, but that's what we need to do going forward. This is what clinical pharmacy needs to step in and help out with, is we need to help work together with you and your doctor to then just adjust your other medications and guide you towards a more acceptable doses that where you could take cannabis. Because it can be game-changing and help you with the uh, often older adults, uh, especially as you get older, you might have a lot of pain and sleep issues. And then those together, if you get less sleep and have more pain, it can lead to more anxiety and depression. So cannabis can have a great effect on that whole, I call the trifecta (laughs) of uh, mental health as well as pain and sleep. But we just have to adjust your medications accordingly and watch that closely. So a good team approach is what's needed. Andy, do you think that the research has caught up with the market, though? Like, do do you feel like you have enough research at your fingertips to know what sort of decisions need to be made with other medications? Because your point earlier was, hey, there isn't a lot of research out there because cannabis was illegal and just people didn't invest in that research. And I know that's not the case. But are we at the place now where there's enough research to make these decisions? Well, yeah, we do know how much, like, what are the enzymes in your liver that are being affected? So then what medications will likely need to be adjusted? So, yes, the, we've caught up. But then the different doses and the different combinations still needs a little bit of tweaking and tinkering. But then at the same time, just like whatever works for you for a medication for a condition may not work for me. We're all different. Right. So we need to have that individualized anyways. So we need to, there's enough information there that we know we need to lower medications and at what level we need to lower to is based on how you respond. 
to uh, that cannabis as w- with, in combination with the other medications. And there has to be an adjustment period where we have, oh, we got to lower it a little bit more and fine-tune the dosing for you. With that landscape out there, are you finding that doctors are more comfortable in recommending cannabis for their patients? Or are we still in a stigma state where the doctors are reluctant to, to make those prescriptions? I think everyone knows that they can help, but since it's like the research is still pretty new, it's more that the doctors uh, and physicians out there that are prescribing don't know what it'll do to other medications. The lack of knowledge of what that'll do concerns them because they don't know what it's going to do to your heart medication or your, your seizure medication and how, what kind of an effect that's going to go with. So they'd rather stick sometimes with other medications and for pain that might have more, um, even believe it or not, sometimes uh, narcotics or other things that they have been around longer. So the stigma has been broken, but it's now the knowledge of what to do next. And that's where Health Canada's recommendation to have pharmacists more involved is correct. And they, I think they realized that maybe they shouldn't have rushed it out and made it available on every street corner for everyone. Now that the, the cat's out of the bag, we're going to have to, there's probably going to be some campaigns out there that helps to steer it back. If you have other prescriptions and awareness campaigns, you need to speak to your pharmacy and get it out of the pharmacy. So a big push to help get pharmacy more involved, to work together with doctors to help personalize and, and tweak your other medications so you could take cannabis safely. Okay, we have time for one last quick question, and that is, do you have any recommendations for people who would like to take medical cannabis to help them with pain or sleep, but have a doctor who may be reluctant to prescribe it? Trying to speak to a clinical pharmacy like ours, like the Health Depot, we can help. At the Health Depot, what we can do is we can access electronic health records for any of our patients in Ontario. It's the same health records you have if you go from one hospital to another in Ontario. They can see all your doctor's reports, specialist reports, drug filling history, lab work. It's game-changing on allowing collaborative care in the community. And this provides us information such as your kidney and liver function and medication blood levels right there at our fingertips at any time for our patients, uh, all in your circle of care. So clinical pharmacists, such as like we have at the health people, can use that expertise and that information to work together with your prescribers and physicians within your circle of care to help personalize medications for you, thus adjusting medications lower or sometimes switching to safer alternatives to treat the same condition in order to allow you to go on uh, medical cannabis. That's the main thing that we need to do going forward, and we offer free consultations if everyone wants to connect with us at the Health Depot. Cannabis can be very effective for sleep, pain, and mood. You just have to have your medications adjusted based on your, your CBD dose. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much. For more information about Andy or getting some treatment with cannabis, visit thehealthdepot.ca. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. 
James F. Jordan is a healthcare and life sciences expert on a mission to improve the business of healthcare for patients and providers. He's a distinguished service professor of healthcare and biotechnology at Carnegie Mellon University, Heinz College, the president of Stratactic, the national co-chairman of the Bio Bootcamp, and the founder of the Healthcare Data Center. He has published numerous articles and books on innovation startups, intellectual products, and health systems, and more can be found on his website, jfjordan.com. Welcome to the show, sir. How are you? Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So 2023, you know, the, in January, everybody's sort of looking forward and, and telling us what's new and what's coming. And that's why we brought you on the show today. We want to hear some some healthcare trends and predictions. You up for the task? I am indeed. So let's get started. What are the healthcare predictions for 2023 as you see it? So there's numerous areas. I think one is going to be policy in general, where we're starting to sort through our policy contradictions. So, for example, on one hand, we have privacy and privacy of data. And on the other hand, we all sort of realize we'd love our Apple Watch to connect to our physician office. So when I go see my physician, there's there's records there and there's all sorts of concerns over of the security there. And then we just have a lot of enabling technology coming, whether it's artificial intelligence, precision medicine, virtual and augmented realities. And then there's a lot of need for, for business model innovations. And how do we get our patients to interact with the healthcare system more effectively, which is really, from, from my understanding of your show, health and wellness, people taking responsibility for their own health. That's not necessarily what the total population does on an average basis. And the question is, how do you engage them to do that? Yeah, I mean, some of the issues that we've touched upon are like we have a huge issue with siloing of information here in Canada because of the jurisdictional issues. So like provinces versus federal. And I'm not sure whether you have the same issues. I don't know who's in charge of healthcare in the states, whether that's a state or whether that's a national regulation. But but those are some of the issues that sort of impact the ability of patients to deal with their caregivers and the privacy issues that you touched upon are dealt with here. Exactly the same issue. You even get it inside of cities where institution one will keep information from institution two and talk about security. But the fact of the matter is they don't want to lose a patient to another institution. Right. Because, you know, ours, uh, we have a much bigger, a more robust public health system than you do in, in, in the States where everything is sort of pay to play down there. So I would imagine, you know, if you're in a hospital system, the economics of it are, are, are different. How can people use these predictions that you touched upon to improve the quality of their care, like on a practical level? So on the practical level, I, I think when you when you look at rural health and, and you look at people that are maybe underprivileged, there's a huge impact of health illiteracy on the cost of the system and, and having people take responsibility for their own care. And it's surprising people don't know necessarily where to, where to go and do that. I have not daughters that are nurses who, you know, teach in some underprivileged areas. And it's just surprising some of the, the things that, that people don't have. So I think it's it's important to get helpful and useful tools, whether it's through uh, phones or gamification. There's lots of work being done, uh, particularly Carnegie Mellon University, with, with gamification of teaching kids how to eat healthy or um, kids with, uh, you know, type 1 diabetes, having a way to educate them through games. And so there's different ways of, of bringing this, this, this information to people. And secondly, for, you know, maybe our, our older adults, there's a lot of advocacy groups out there for chronic disease and in certain areas that, that can help you 
navigate care coordination, understand medical jargon, and and make you know good decisions. And I think for the more tech savvy folks, I think that you know using our electronic scales, our our watches, and and what we eat to understand the the cause and effect of the things that we do on our on our health and get them before they become acute is, is critically important. I have found, for example, on my, my Apple Watch, I've sort of got my food log and I've got all this sort of information coming together. I've learned over the past few years that things like mixing dessert and red wine for me will cause me to itch about two hours later, <laughs> um, something I've never put together, right? So it's, it's little things like that that I think those folks who, you know, take responsibility for their own health can start learning about. And those are things that, you know, your doctor can't learn about you. That's true. You know, you touched upon the technology and as it pertains to the different demographics. I, I think one of the key issues, I think the technology can be tremendously helpful for, for older North Americans. But, you know, the, the problem, the logjam is sometimes they're not as quick to take on the new technology. Do you think that's accurate? I think that's that's very accurate, but it's how you take on the new technology. So, for example, in one of my previous roles, I was with a nonprofit investment company, so think of like a venture capital firm, mm-hmm. and there was a uh, congestive heart failure um, model that had come out where, you know, if you can manage the patients and have them take their weight and, and a bunch of blood pressure and a bunch of other issues, you can actually predict when they're sort of moving into trouble before they, they get there. And right. if they get there, you know, it ends up being a hospital visit and, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in, in, in repair. And so it came down to uh, two interesting issues when dealing with old people to think it through. The, the first piece is that the nurses had, had gotten together that were making these calls to collect this information and realized that an average visit um, on, on the phone was, was about eight minutes. And they realized very quickly that... Um, but these people, people that don't really move around, these calls were actually a social opportunity. For sure. And so what they realized very quickly is that we could take the stats in two minutes and have a conversation with Nana. Um, and so they actually changed the model where they had two nurses dedicated to every patient that someone was out so that they would build a relationship. And so that's one thing they did. The second thing they did is we tend to give them like an iPad or some sort of tool and we strip away everything else that's on that iPad, right? We just want you to use it for this business model. Well, in this case, they left the iPad so that she could learn how to, you know, remote control her TV from her iPad, text and and message with the grandchildren. And so what this group did, I thought very, very well, was recognize you, you have to look at getting healthcare back to people because that's, you know, that's really where we were, right? I remember my great-grandmother having Dr. Wally come to the house, and mm-hmm. he knew everything about her. Or I think of the, uh, there's a Michael J. Fox movie in, like, 1991, I think it was called Doc Hollywood, where yep. he ends up in a rural community, and, and, you know, he wants to do this open-heart surgery or something and rush this patient, and the doctor says, you know, hey, Junior, did you eat your dad's tobacco again, drink this Coke, right? That's about having this personal relationship. So the question is, with all the patients we have out there, how can we use technology to get that personalization back into it? Yeah, uh, we have an acute GP shortage here in Canada. In, in British Columbia, it's, it's extremely bad. But even in the jurisdiction that we're in, in Ontario, uh, there's a lot of people who are struggling to find a family doctor. So how do you protect your family against physician shortage? So in the U.S., we're planning by 2030 to have between 24,000 and 124,000 gap in, in physicians, too. And so that's a, a critical issue. But I don't know if you're having the same issue in Canada, but we're predicting that nurse practitioners and physician assistants may be more abundant 
And so given that it takes 15 years to train a position, um, this might be a better solution is, is, is how do we use those folks. But as it relates to taking a proactive response to building relationship with your physician. So if you have, I think the older folks particularly um, think of it, uh, healthcare is acute. And I think the issue we have with younger folks is they tend to relocate around, move jobs. And so as a result, they don't actually know the rules in their province so they don't actually know the boundaries of their health care and they're kind of healthy so they wait. I think you need to have your annual preventive visits with your primary care physician and get logged into their system. So I don't know if you've had this experience before but if you relocate and all of a sudden you need a physician and you say are you an existing you know patient the answer is no it's like okay we'll get you in in six months. So I think that it's important that you connect and build that relationship. And then the second piece is finding your specialists if you do have chronic disease and, and understanding when you make that transition. So for example, a little different in, in, in US uh, versus Canada, um, where in Canada, the primary caregiver tends to have a little more control in the gatekeeping. But at the same time, if you have say end-stage renal disease and you're moving to stage three, that is a trigger in Canada, it's time to see the nephrologist. Be proactive about that and build relationships with these people. Okay, so this time of year is when the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas ramps up, and I actually had the opportunity to go some years back to see what was new. So instead of doing that this year, we have you on the show. So what's new and exciting on the, on the cutting-edge technological side? I think I'd break it into consumer, and I'd break it into provider hospital. So I'll, I'll start with provider hospital. I think there's advancements in computer vision that's happening where we can go through all our imaging systems and discern if, say, a little spot on your lung has the probability of advancing to cancer mm-hmm. um, by looking at our entire data set and say, is there a statistical, can we find in our data set someone or a group of people that have a dot like that and can we find in 10 years if that's an issue? So computer vision, I think, is pretty significant. And I think in the operating room, I'd be flipping a coin between robotics and augmented technology. So robotics is providing precision and an extra pair of hands and and doing things minimally invasively versus cutting someone open. And the one that I've seen is is the coolest, I think, is the augmented reality. So imagine you're doing a spinal fusion or a hip, and you can imagine that these angles are critical, like subtle differences in angles can, can be the difference between success or not. And historically, we put a patient on the table, we've measured the angles, we've done our thing, but it's easy to move the patient. It's easy to to um, determine if your angles are wrong. So now doctors have the ability to take CT scans before the procedure, register the patient on the table so that their markers are geared towards the imaging system. And so if they move, the entire operating room plan adjusts accordingly. And I think that's amazing. That is amazing. I'd love to talk more about this. We're going to have to bring you back. Unfortunately, we're out of time today. Will you come back on the show again? Absolutely. Thank you so much. That was James F. Jordan. For more information about him, please visit jfjordan.com. For great health and wellness interviews and articles, uh, visit thetonic.ca. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss all you need to know about seeds on The Tonic. Are you stressed out, feeling down, having trouble sleeping? New Roots Herbal offers natural supplements to help take the edge off, relax, enhance your mood, and sleep better. Discover De-Stress, Merry Mind Omega, and Sleep 8. Natural ingredients and guaranteed purity for a better day and a restful night. Find these and other New Roots Herbal products exclusively at quality health food stores. And for more information, visit newrootsherbal.com. 
To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Melissa Cameron is an organic master gardener and founder of The Good Seed, a garden education and design company. She's been featured on websites such as Farmer's Footprint, Florit, and Toronto Life, and is a regular garden contributor for Canadian Vegan Magazine. The Good Seed specializes in organic edible gardens, pollinator and native garden plantings, and sustainable cut flower garden designs. In addition, she is the co-founder of the Abermory Garden Collective, a not-for-profit that grows organic food and donates it to families with young children facing food insecurity. And for more information, you could always visit thegoodseedgarden.com. Welcome back to the show. How are you? Thanks, Jamie. I'm great. How are you? Good. So I know something about you, and that is you are a big fan of seeds. Pretty much every interview we do, you always find a way to seed in a little comment about <laughs> seeds. But but today we're going to do an entire interview about seeds because I know you really like seeds, right? Yes. And there is so much to talk about when we think about seeds. Okay. So why should we buy and start with our own seeds? So for me, there is nothing more miraculous in my mind than seeds. What appear to be inert little grains are in fact ready to provide you with an abundance of nourishment or beauty. Seeds are so wonderfully magical because they contain all of the genetic material from generations of plants that have come before them and also the potential for what is to grow from them. And I think that that's really mind-blowing personally. So growing from seed yourself... And so whether you directly sow seeds into the soil or you start them indoors, it really opens up a whole world of possibilities to access varieties that are not commonplace. You also have a level of control and of nurturing your plants that's pretty unmatched. And if you're growing an edible garden, there are so many varieties of veg that you will never find at the grocery store that you can grow yourself. And if you're growing flowers, you'll also be able to ensure that you aren't dependent on a plant nursery to carry something very specific that you might be looking for. Right. And those are all the pauses. I, I, I guess one aspect is it requires perhaps a skill set that is, you know, more challenging than simply going and buying the plants and, and putting them in the ground. But I presume I presume it's not too daunting to grow from seeds. Otherwise, you wouldn't be advocating. Do you know what? I think it's a journey. I think it takes a little bit of commitment, a little bit of trial and error just to sort of get a flow and a rhythm. But I definitely think it's worth it. So if I were inclined to take you up on this offer of, you know, going out there and buying seeds and working with them, where should we get the seeds? That seems pretty important. So in general, and I'm, I apologize ahead of time if this isn't an unpopular opinion, but I tend to think that you should not buy your seeds from big box stores. Um, these seeds are rarely organic or of superior quality and variety. There are plenty of wonderful seed companies to support that have excellent quality seeds. And further, it's actually a great idea to purchase seeds that were harvested from crops that were grown in similar climates to where we are. So plants grown for their seeds in New England, for example, would be very different than ones grown for a seed company that would be on the West Coast. So choose something local if possible. Okay, so what's your definition of local then? What's the radius? I think you have to look at who has a similar climate. So do they get snow like we do? Do they get cold winters like we do in Southern Ontario? So, you know, Southern Ontario, the Maritimes, New England, 
all of that, I think, is, is quite different than, for instance, the Pacific Northwest. Sure, for sure. Yeah. So do we have to start the seeds indoors or, or can we just put them in the garden? given our climate? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. So of course, no, not all seeds need to be started indoors. And lots of seeds can be and should be directly sown. We'll give you some examples. Seeds for peas, beans, radishes, carrots, beets, zinnias, calendulas, sunflowers, cosmos, all of these can be directly sown. But what I want you to think about is the seeds that are for plants that are a bit more tropical, mm-hmm. we need to start those indoors so that we have long enough in the growing season in order for them to fruit or to blossom. So those would include heat lovers like tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, and many, many, many of the flowers that we like. When should we be buying our seeds? How far in front of this do we need to get? Today. Oh, all right. <laughs> all right. As soon as we so, finish here, then I'm off to buy my seeds. you have homework. So your seeds should be but as soon as your supplier releases their current year's stock. And this is really going to make sure that you get the varieties that you covet the most. Mm-hmm. Um, seeds can sell out, and there is really no benefit to waiting to purchase them. And the pandemic has really shown us, you know, supply chain issues. So, you know, don't sleep on it. Go for it. If you bought seeds last year, could you use them this year? Do they have a shelf life? They do. That's a great question. So seeds have usually on the seed packet something called a germination rate. And that is the percentage of seeds out of 100 that germinate on a consistent basis. So as the seeds age, their germination rate will decrease. But for most of the seeds that we would be buying for our gardens, you know, a two-year-old seed packet, if it was stored in a good dry space, will be totally viable this year. So you mentioned the nightshades and the flowers that we might want to start indoors Uh, How far in front of that do we need to get ahead of spring? Should we be doing that right away too? No. So this takes a little bit of detective work. Okay. So in order to know when to start your seeds indoors, you first have to figure out when your local last frost date is. Right. And there's lots of websites that do that, but you know, you just simply have to Google average last frost date for, and then insert your location. And then knowing this is going to help you when you turn over that seed packet that you've bought and you see an instruction such as start seeds four to six weeks before last frost. Mm -hmm. So uh, my experience in Toronto with frost is we can get it as late as April. Is that your experience? So in Toronto, actually, our last frost date and its aggregated data is probably somewhere around the May 15th date. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I would actually sort of venture to say, um, I think it was two or three years ago, we had a snow way after Victoria Day. So I don't tend to recommend that you transplant any of your heat-loving plants outside until you look at that 10-day forecast in May and you see really no danger. Okay. I mean, historically, it was was Victoria Day weekend where I put stuff in the ground, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think you want to be cautious. You've babied these plants, you've nurtured them. They're going to do just fine if you wait a couple of weeks. Okay. But don't you have, don't you have to worry that if you do it too late, it just becomes too hot and dry and, and, and they don't the roots don't take? You want to be sure that you're not starting things too soon indoors because we don't want your seedlings to become root bound. Got it. Okay. We want to make sure they have lots of room to grow. So you can always keep sizing them up, like putting them in larger pots and keeping them under the grow lights. But in general, sometimes we get really excited to do this and we start this project way too soon. So four to six weeks before last frost is not March 1st. Okay. What about start? What about starting seeds in the windowsill? Like, do, do we need the special lights or can we get away with do, doing it on the windowsill? Okay, again, an unpopular opinion. Please don't start your seeds on the windowsill. It is not a recipe for success. 
And the reason is, is that seedlings require a good chunk of direct, consistent light to grow properly. And I'm talking like 18 hours. Um, If you get yourself a great light setup, you're going to be able to put the lights on a timer and your seeds are going to be wonderfully robust and they're going to avoid being what we call leggy. So leggy is when your plant, instead of growing sort of squat and sturdy, starts to stretch and look for that light Mm. and actually becomes quite sloppy and doesn't tend to thrive once you transplant it into the garden. Okay, so there's there's a phrase called hardening off. What does that mean? Well, when you are growing indoors, your seedlings are not going to be receiving any natural UV light from the sun. Mm-hmm. So you cannot simply take those great seedlings that you've been babying for six weeks and put them in the ground. You need to gradually expose them to both direct and indirect light over a week's time so that they can then not get burnt by the sun. And, and that's what hardening off refers to. And that's what hardening off is. It's simply hardening them off to the violent rays of the sun. Okay, so let's talk money, right? Because everybody's under tremendous strain with inflation. Has inflation reached the seeds or is it, is it still a relatively cheap proposition to grow from seeds or am I way off base here? Yeah, I mean, you can definitely save money if you buy seeds and directly sow them. When we're talking about starting seeds indoors, it's definitely a labor of love and will require an upfront investment for your seed starting equipment and lights. Um, So at the end of the day, I think if you are looking to be budget conscious, definitely grab those seeds that are meant for direct sow, your peas, your beans, your radishes, and then for the flowers, like the ones I mentioned, your cosmos, your zinnias, your sunflowers, you can create beautiful direct sow gardens for a fraction of what you would pay for plants at the nursery. Okay, if you were inclined, though, to get the grow lights and, and set up an area for, for nurturing your plants indoors, what kind of budget should you set aside, do you think? Um, I want you to buy the good stuff. Let's not. This isn't the time where you're like, oh, I'm going to buy the rickety shelf from Kijiji. Yeah. No. <laughs> so you're probably looking somewhere between 200 and $300 to get yourself a setup with a shelf, some lights, a timer, seed trays or soil blocks and good quality seed starting mix. Okay. Last but not least, can you give us some top picks for some seeds that people will be happy with? I'm going to say that if you are growing an edible garden, the Cogenut squash seeds from a company called Row 7 are incredible. Just the most tasty squash you've ever had. I would also recommend black crim tomatoes and uh, some kind of organic basil. You can't go wrong. Salanova lettuce is a proprietary seed from Johnny's, and that's great. If you're growing a flower garden, Mm -hmm. definitely think about incorporating herbs into that flower garden because then you're kind of getting bang for your buck. So chamomile is beautiful to look at, but you can also make tea with it. Lavender, sage, these things really can help you create a multi-layered garden and a multi-purpose garden. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. What would you like to discuss the next time you're on? Uh, Next time, I'd love to talk to you about garden design tips. Cool. That was Melissa Cameron. To learn more about Melissa, please visit thegoodseedgarden.com. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the science of exercise on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. 
Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. David Nelson is a fellow at Invivo Planetary Health, a part of the Nova Institute for Health of People, Places, and Planet, located in Baltimore, Maryland. He attended the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine, is a health food retail and wellness service business owner, and he's written numerous academic articles. His latest establishes the importance of the acid-alkaline balance of the foods we eat. He also lives in Woodstock with his family. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you? Not too bad, Jamie. Uh, Happy New Year. It's good to be back. Yeah. Um, I always love doing these because you ask good questions. Well, thank you very much, sir. This is the the time of year where where a lot of people who probably have been sitting on their duffs for a while decide to start exercising. And so it's very apropos. We're going to talk about some new science on exercise for people who need a little bit more motivation to get going. So what are some of the new developments that should stoke our desire to get moving? It's a great question, Jamie. We've heard for probably most of our lives that we need to exercise. And we get this blanket recommendation. It's like you got to get out in there and exercise. We know it makes us feel better. We know it does some things in our body in terms of, you know, metabolic balancing, you know, blood sugar utilization, insulin sensitivity. But now we're finding some other more subtle but incredibly powerful things about exercise. They have to do with our mind-body connection, the way we get motivated, and actually our gut health and microbiome. And that's part of the biggest news about exercise is that gut, brain, motivation, and also exercise tolerance. And it seems to cross, cross through the gut, and it's super interesting. Anecdotally, yesterday's workout, I, I had a bit of a, a rumbly tummy uh, and I was feeling unmotivated to work out. It was really, really a hard strain to get there. Uh, and interesting, I have this program that I do, and it takes a certain amount of minutes. It's like a long row. And I was off by 10% yesterday because of my gut. Right. And so I'll be interested to hear if that ties in into what you're talking about. That could be fuel. So, I mean, it could be as simple as it takes a little while to get glycogen to... Um, to start to be broken down into glucose so that muscles can use it. You have an extra reservoir in your, in your liver. And if you're a bit hungry, your body could have been holding on to calories instead of expending them. Uh, but there is a gut, there's a gut angle there too. So yeah, yeah it's all, it's all, it's all connected. All right. So I used to run and there's something called the runner's high, which mm. occurs if you have vigorous exercise. I get it now from rowing or lifting weights. And I used to think it was tied to endorphins, but those feel-good hormones that we know about, the science behind that is, has been challenged recently. You want to share a little bit about that? Yeah, so that, that actually is a finding. So uh, we, we know that exercise can raise endorphins, right? So mm-hmm. those endorphins, that, that's been well-studied. But the other thing that hasn't been well-studied, and it started in 2004, and then there was a big study that came out in 2022 about the runner's high specifically, and it turned out that it's not endorphins. And this is the huge news. It's endocannabinoids. Huh. So let me just, for your listeners, cannabinoids are the things that we normally associate with cannabis, marijuana. So it's legal in Canada now. So we've been you know, using it. But we're looking now, because we're using cannabis um, 
around the world, the legislation's dropping. Everybody's looking at, well, what are endocannabinoids? Endo being made in your body, and then cannabinoid as the molecule. And it turns out that we think that almost every cell in our bodies has cannabinoid receptors. They're not just in the brain, they're in the body. The immune system has them. Our organs have them. Uh, So what's interesting is the cannabinoid system in the body gives you the I'm all good signal. It means that you feel uh, uh, a little bit buoyant, you're a little bit happy, your mood is a bit brighter, and you flow through the world a little bit better. It's called homeostatic control, uh, and that's one of the uh, things that gives us feedback to our brain that we're in a good place. And that's why you get that runner's high or the feel-good high from exercise. It's a combination of factors, but the endocannabinoids, and here's the really interesting thing. It seems that this helps us modulate our immune response and metabolism. So those endocannabinoids have an influence on metabolism and how we feel. So exercise now has another angle for toning our inner molecular disarray when we don't feel well and it brings it back to neutral it's really interesting stuff anecdotally i mean i was glad even though my stomach was off yesterday for having worked out because i actually did feel better after but there's a more salient connection between exercise and the microbiome right yeah absolutely and thanks for thanks for the segue there these studies now are coming out in it first came out in 2019 2020 and 2022 and let me break down what the studies found um, the first one was, was the idea that the microbiome is actually essential for us to do a couple things, like the extraction of nutrients. So our microbiome is the thing that's helping us to utilize the food that we eat. Uh, so we harvest energy. We do nutrient uptake. That's the microbiome. Inflammatory modulation, microbiome. Host immune response, microbiome. So exercise is toning, I call it tonifying, so it's tonifying the microbiome. And then I'll just add another layer here, just so your listeners can understand how deep this goes. Marathon runners appear that they have incredible endurance, right? This Mm -hmm. is the training that they go through. Well, actually, they found that when you start running longer distances, you cultivate a bacteria in your gut called valinella. And that valinella bacteria consumes lactate. And lactate is the waste product of endurance exercise. We know it as lactic acid. You know, again, yeah. maybe your muscles get sore post-exercise. Yep. So actually, when you're running and you feel that pain in your muscles or you're like, oh, I just can't keep running, that's lactic acid accumulation. It turns out that really competent runners or those that um, may have more of this bacteria in their gut to begin with are already more efficient runners and when they took that bacteria because we we don't know how efficient the runners are the human runners are so we have to take the bacteria and put it into mice and we found with a mouse trial on that valinella they got 13 percent better use of energy by consuming lactate so they could perform more work and go farther just because of the bacteria and huh. I find it amazing. That is incredible. I, you, you think about the, you know, running begets more running, right? So the training yes, would right, make you right. make you, you know, a better runner. But on a gut level, that that's kind of fascinating. D- does the microbiome impact our hormones as well? Yeah. Gr- okay. Yeah. So great question. I, I suspect maybe um, being who you are, you've come across 
maybe it flashed on your screen, but yeah, that's the big news um, in late December of 2022. Now, this is a mouse trial, so it's really important that I say that, but mm-hmm. this really looks like it's going to carry over into a human trial. And what they found was that when you do long-term uh, aerobic exercise, so it's a higher intensity and it's longer-term exercise, guess what happens? It changes your motivation to exercise. So when you tone the gut bacteria, those gut bacteria increase your motivation to exercise. I don't know how to say this in a way that your listeners are going to feel the gravity of it, but this is why you must exercise first to generate the motivation to exercise again and again and again. It's always hard to get started. Yep. But when you start doing it, your bacteria, and specifically like one of them was acromancia, allobaculum is the other one, and lactobacillus. There's three that drive the motivation to exercise. And there's another piece to this. At least in men, when that motivation begins and your bacteria and your gut are changing, it's getting tonified and you're raising levels of things like acromancia, guess what happens? You start to produce more testosterone. Your testosterone goes up based on the microbial communities and the motivation in your gut. Yes. I I mean, I think a a lot of people who exercise regularly, a lot of men will tell you that they they Mm have like, you know, the offshoot of the testosterone, the the emotional response to the testosterone. You can feel it after you work out. But it's interesting to hear the science behind it. I I mean, getting getting people who don't exercise to exercise is really the key. You know what? What is the best type of exercise? Like what? <laughs> yeah, good question. It's anything, obviously, that you're doing. So that's yeah. an easy answer for yeah. me. Yep, and agreed. when people are like, oh, walking can't do it, yeah, walking can. Actually, the data's out on that. You'll live longer. You'll live a higher quality of life with a 20-minute walk five, five days a week, mm-hmm. especially if it's done outside. So let's just clear that off the table. You don't have to go work out in the gym and everything else. However, so there is a however here. Yep. Walking will get you there, but resistance training and um, – doing uh, high-intensity stuff, it makes the value of exercise even bigger. A study just came out that just showed that just merely lowering weights, that's called eccentric loading as opposed to concentric loading, which is the muscle shortens when it's a concentric movement and lengthens when it's an eccentric movement. Just putting weights down is actually enough to get muscular resistance changes so that you get hypertrophy, they consume more calories, it tones your immune system, and a bunch of other stuff. So the best exercise is the one that you're going to do. But if you load it and you do eccentric loading, letting it down slowly, you can cut your workout time in half and get 80 to 90% of the benefits. I actually read that study. And, and yeah, we have time I'm for sure you did. You, and, you read a lot. <laughs> and the last little bit of information is when is the best time of day to work out? I think I know the yeah, answer. Great question. Uh, it really depends on people's chronobiology. So, if you're a late sleeper inner, you're probably going to be a late exerciser. If you're an early, if you get up early, you're probably going to benefit from early exercise. Um, one key point is that um, people who exercise late, as long as it's not within two hours of bed, it doesn't affect their sleep. I just want to make sure everybody knows that. You may feel alert when you exercise later but it actually doesn't affect the quality nor quantity of your sleep. Those studies have been done. So you can exercise late and still get the benefit from it. Fantastic. Next time you come on the show, what do you want to talk about? 
well, let's stay in the same vein of exercise because everybody needs to, uh, you know, get hydrated. So uh, there is some phenomenal stuff about why water is something you just can't ignore if you want to live a long time. Fantastic. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Andy Donald, James F. Jordan, Melissa Cameron, and David Nelson. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The January-February issue is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.